Well, happy Easter. Uh, he is risen. All right. Well, hey, so excited to be with you guys. I want to say this really quick as we begin. Uh, next week is our next Discover launch at New City. We do this every so often. And here's the thing. We think Jesus is amazing. And here's the, the other thing is there's a lot of great churches in Raleigh. Our hope is that people would follow Jesus in community. And so Discover is a great way of finding out if this is the church for you, or maybe there's another church in the area that God might have for you. And so it's super laid back. We just talk about our values, vision, mission, how to get connected, all those sort of sides of things. So if you're new or you have never been, I would just highly encourage you to sign up and stick around next Sunday. Now today, uh, we're celebrating Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. And it reminds me every year of when I was, I don't know, six, seven years old. We'll say, let's say six, because that sounds better for this story. I had one of those Tamagotchi pets. Raise your hand if you had a Tamagotchi pet. Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Okay, more than one. That's not true. First service, like half people have their hands up. Well, here's a picture of it uh, for those of you that don't know where they are. They were like the mid, like mid to late 90s or maybe, yeah, that's kind of when these things were really big. And there was like these digital animals that you would have to feed and give it water and do all these things. Uh, And then if you didn't, they would die. And I was reading some articles about it this week, and I found that when they first came out, apparently the first version of them were too hard. Like kids had to be constantly checking them, so they tried to make them a little bit easier. Then there's all these articles about teachers and the schools and all these things being frustrated because kids were on these devices all day. Little did they know that was just practice for what we have today with our smartphones. But I had it in my mind for some reason with my little Tamagotchi pet that once it died three times, there was it. I couldn't play with it anymore. I've murdered the thing too many times. And so I still remember vividly, I was in, the mini, in our minivan. I don't know if my brothers were with me. I don't know if it was my mom or my dad dri- driving, but my Tamagotchi pet died for the third time. And I'm sitting there like crying, but like trying not to make any noises. So I'm like looking over here, like those things. And I'm just like devastated, like the Tamagotchi murderer. Like I don't get to play anymore. And then about 30 seconds, a minute later, I don't remember how long it was. That little baby sprung back up, back to life. And I got to start over. And I remember thinking, won't he do it? Amen, right? And so my Tamagotchi came back to life. And who, who knows how many times I killed that thing, but it came back to life. And today we're looking at this question. How can we go from death? to life. How can we, in the midst of our troubles and our trials and our discouragements and our sin and our brokenness, go from death to experiencing life and peace and contentment and joy, even in hard times, right? Here's the thing. We're all going to die, but even more, how does the, how does the resurrection of Jesus play a part in us getting and receiving life? And who was the resurrection of Jesus actually for? What implications does it have for us today? How can we, as people, go from death to life. That is what we're looking at this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, uh, Ephesians uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. He was a foundational leader in the early church. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it is all about Jesus and his power and his majesty and his glory and all the things that he has done for us. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about us and the implication for what, who Jesus is and how that impacts us. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. Now, let me just, so we're on the same page here. Let me give us a quick definition of sin so we can understand what Paul is talking about. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but here's an easy definition. Uh, Sin is acting or behaving in a way uh, that does not conform with God's character. 
So God is the creator. We are the creation. And so anytime we do something that's not conform or obey his character, we have sin, sin whether it's a, a super small thing or a, a super big thing. Right? We have gone our own way. We have made a decision that does not honor God and love people. And what Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 2 is that our sins have made us dead. They cut us off from the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God. That we are not just wounded or we are not just weakened or we are not stumbling, but we're actually dead. That's what Paul says our sin has made us. And here's the thing about being dead, right? Dead things cannot help themselves. Dead things cannot resurrect themselves. When you are dead, it is over. Dead things stay dead. Sin separates us from a perfect and holy and righteous God, and there is nothing that you and I can do to change that, right? So there's no, I'm going to try harder, or I'm going to try to make sure that my good outweighs my bad, as if who gets to decide if your good does that? And also, that is a horrific, terrifying way to live, thinking one day, hopefully, I had to do more good than bad so that I can go to the, dead pla- the good place when I die. Like, that's a scary way to live. And even somehow, if your good could outweigh your bad, you still have to do something with your sin. Your brokenness, uh, your, uh, your going against God, our creator's desires still has to be dealt with. And because we have sin, we are broken from God. And what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2 is that there is no middle ground here, that you are either alive or that you are dead. That's it. In fact, Paul is telling these believers, he's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he's telling these believers that their sins made them side with the power of evil, which is Satan himself, who lures and traps those who do not know God. If you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis and Genesis chapter four, it talks about the evil one who's crouching and waiting, trying to devour those who would go their own way, that it ensnares us, that it traps us. And he's telling us, this is all of us. All of us have gone our own way. All of us are going to face death and judgment for what he has done. But again, what we often think is as long as I do enough good, as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I can kind of prove it and I can kind of earn my way in. We kind of, kind of think of it like grades at, at school, right? So let's say you take a test and you fail and you bomb it, right? The, the rest of the semester, you're trying to study, you're doing all the assignments, you're trying to do your quizzes, you're trying to get your grade from failing to passing, right? That if you can just perform enough, if you can do just good enough, you can make it. That's kind of how we think life is and how our relationship with God God is. Like we got to do enough to make sure that he's going to accept us. Or uh, for me, uh, I went to UNC Wilmington for college and I was originally waitlisted, which means like not, not yes or no. I guess it depends on how many people they accept actually say they're going to go there. And then the waitlisted people, if you're lucky, maybe they'll choose you. So I was waitlisted. It's where I wanted to go to school. And then in the spring, I uh, had an audition for the music program. So I auditioned for the music program. I made it into the music program at UNCW. And they told me, they said, just because you're in this program, it doesn't mean you're going to be accepted into the school. Like that's their own decision. It doesn't guarantee you're going to be accepted. However, within a week of getting into the program, I got the letter in the mail that I was accepted, right? There's, there's no doubt UNCW was like, well, I guess we have a reason to actually accept this guy. And so from what I did, me, me getting into the music program, even though I left, you know, a, a year later, so thanks for that, um, or switched majors after that, that is what got me in. I wasn't sure something I provided got me into school. Something I did changed my status. But the question for us, does God really operate like that? Uh, the bad news is Paul seems to say that we are dead, which means that we cannot earn it. In fact, he continues, if we continue reading in verse 3 by saying this, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires 
carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we too, he's writing this letter to Christians, we too, this was our state, that we were dead and we were broken in our sin. By our very nature, we were people deserving of God's judgment. And as we've been talking about the last few weeks, God judges because he loves. If he did not love, he would not judge because he would not care. So big things or small things, God judges because he cares. And again, for all of us, even if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, all of us would say we all have a standard of morality things that we think are good, things that we think are bad, and all of us have fallen short even of our own standards, where we've all done things, even we would say, yeah, I should not have done that. And so we know we have not measured up, particularly if there is a God who exists. We know we have not measured up. Now, we, we might not wish to be judged for our sins, but we all know this to be true. We all know there's something broken within us, that we are not the person that we wish we could be. And if we wish that God would intervene against the injustices of others, of the injustices Justices in the world, or when people do things to you, why should he not do to the same to us? Should he not be consistent in judging all sin and judging all brokenness? And so this is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians, is that our sin leaves us dead. It leaves us dead. Not wounded, not broken, not if I do enough stuff, I can do better, but completely dead. In fact, you might be familiar with this phrase. Perhaps you've heard it in the past when people sometimes say that God helps those who help themselves. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Um, should, you should know that it's found nowhere in scripture. Nowhere are we told that God helps those who help themselves, right? Because there is nothing, especially what Ephesians 2 is telling us, uh, there is nothing that th in our condition that we can change on our own. And that is because dead things cannot help themselves. Therefore, we cannot help ourselves. And so if that was true, then God also would not help us. We are dead. Now, uh, in our current American context, particularly, you know, the, the year that we live, uh, we've all probably experienced death to certain degrees and certain levels. Um, but it's not like it was in the past. People would often die at home. You know, there's a lot of illnesses that we have medicine and surgery for that would kill people that it's not killed today. And so for many of us, perhaps your first um, instance or your first brush with death might have been your pet. Right? If, you think, if you had a pet, think back to the time your pet died. Yes, I'm trying to give you nice warm fuzzies this morning. I remember my first pet death. Uh, me and my older brother had a gerbil. We both had a gerbil. There's two of them. And we would uh, take them out of their cage sometimes. We would put them in the bathroom and let them run around. We also had these like plastic balls. Where we would put them in these plastic balls and take them outside for their, the closest taste of freedom they will ever have. Right? So one day, we, I take these, these dribbles out. I put them in these plastic balls. They're, they're running around in the driveway. And, and my dribble, his name was Boxer. He had little white paws. He goes under my dad's car who was parked on the driveway. Now, they would do that occasionally because it was shaded under there. So it was a little bit cooler. So he's running around. He goes under my dad's car. And dribbles, like, they don't sit. Like, they're just constantly moving. And so he goes under his car. And 15 seconds later, he's not there. He's, he hasn't come out. And 30 seconds later, he hasn't come out. And a minute later, he hasn't come out. So I'm like, well, that's weird. So I go look at my dad's car and my dribble's just like this. Like he ain't moving. He died. Well, I don't know how he died. He was just done right? Uh, that was my first pet death. A couple years later, we got this cat named Pepper. She was amazing. She was an indoor and outdoor cat. I'm not kidding when I tell you she killed snakes, rabbits, and birds. She would bring them home. And we lived in a neighborhood. I don't know where, like a, like a suburban neighborhood. I don't know where she got these things, but she would bring them home. It was, my mom hated it. I thought it was amazing. Uh, she would also like sit in your lap and like sleep with you. So she was like the best of all worlds. And I was out of town on like this little middle school mission trip. And we, when I found out my cat died, 
And I was like really devastated about it. Of course, I'm around all my friends, so I'm like, cats are dumb, who cares? And I'm like, yeah. right, I'm so sad. And I get home and they had buried the cat already because apparently you can't leave a cat carcass to sit in the living room. I don't know why. And so it was already, like I missed the funeral. Like I was so sad, but I was so sad. Now I share that because again, there's nothing I could have done that could change. There is a finality to that, that you wish you could have your pet back, but they are dead and it cannot be changed. There's nothing bringing them back. There's nothing that changes the finality to death. So the question for us is what are we to do? If we can't earn our way, if we can't erase our sin, what are we to do but experience death unless God intervenes? And here's what Paul says. If we continue reading verse four, here's God's response to our dead state. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. What he's saying here is that you, in your dead state, deserving judgment and condemnation from God, that instead of God condemning you, turning his back on you, giving you and I what we deserve, instead he looks at us with mercy, that he looks with us with love, that he offers us redemption through Christ, that we were dead, but he's offering us life. And this is what we're celebrating on Easter morning, the historical fact that Jesus defeated death, that he lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. He actually measured up, unlike you and I, he goes to the cross as our substitute, as our atonement, but he does not stay dead. He rises three days later to show his power over sin and death and that anyone who would trust in his sacrifice, his performance, not ours, can receive the redemption of God. What we see here is that we do not worship a God who meets us halfway. We do not worship a God that says, you've, you've behaved enough, you wear, you wear the right enough clothes, you say the same things, I will save you. That is not who we worship. We worship a God who comes all the way down to lift us all the way up. That even though we were dead, that his, he is a compassionate, that he's a faithful, that his love, that he changes our destiny, not based on our performance, but based on what Jesus has done. But... God. And it's again, not because you tried really hard or because you got accepted into the music program or because you decided to stop looking at porn or to stop lying to your friends or to stop sleeping around, that it's because God loved you right where you are. That's how you can receive mercy. Not some future version of you when you've got your 10 life, 10 year plan and everything's figured out and you've got the dream job and you've got the two and a half kids and, and you've got the house, but you today. What happened is Jesus happened so that you and I can receive the mercy of God. Which is why, if you continue reading in verse 5, Paul then says this. He says, you are saved by grace. That's how you're saved. That if you are in Christ right now, it's because of God's grace in your life. And if you are currently dead in your sins, far from God, the invitation is God's grace. The invitation is not change what you wear, change what you do, change who you talk to, or change who you hang out with. It is not behavior modification. It is grace. Right, what we see happening here is that dead things must be given life. And that what Christ has done. That he has taken what is dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in faithful love, his grace is what draws us in. That something outside of your control, outside of my control, has to happen so that you and I can be redeemed and experience the grace and mercy of God. That you and I are incapable, incapable of doing anything about it. 
but God. He has to be the one that has given us life. Um, it reminds me, and when I say reminds me, I say someone told this to me because this is going to be my second Princess Bride reference in the last couple weeks, and I have never seen the movie, and so I've never seen the movie. However, there's a, I watched the five-minute clip of this part of the movie, and there's a part of the movie where one of the main characters has another one of the main characters, I guess, who's like dead, and they go to this really old guy's house. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, who used to be like working for the king, but then he got fired or something. I don't know why. And he performs miracles. And they bring this guy who's dead to the old guy's house. And they're like, we need you to bring him back to life. And he asks the question, is he dead? And they're like, well, he's mostly dead. To which this magician guy says, well, mostly dead means slightly alive. But if they're all the way dead, then I can't help you. But mostly dead means that I can do something about it. Right? And that's what I think we have found. I think if we're honest, I think we are willing to admit if God exists and he's true and he's perfect and we are not, then we've probably got some things that, that we have that we got to figure out. We probably haven't performed enough, but maybe I can overcome what I have done. Maybe I can perform enough that God will lovely. That maybe I'm just mostly dead. But Ephesians doesn't say that. It says that you are dead, dead. And so God has to do something. This is why one of the things that happens uh, to those that maybe are a little bit older and start following Jesus later in life or start realizing the gospel later in life, one of the things that we'll, they'll say, perhaps you have thought this, is that I have done too much. Like, I, I get God is gracious and loving and kind, but I have decades of making poor decisions, decades of doing what I wanted to do, decades of not honoring God. Why would he forgive me? And, and I think the thought process there is that I'm, because I'm older, I don't have enough time to make up for all that I did. I don't have enough time to make God give me his grace. I don't have enough time to perform my way into his mercy. But even that is a complete misunderstanding because it is all by grace. Whether you're five or you're 50 or you're 100, it is all by grace. And here's the good news. Not only were you saved and redeemed, but there's even more. If we continue reading in verse six, Paul then says this, he has also raised raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that those who believe, not based on their effort, but based on trusting and repenting and trusting in what Jesus has done for them, those who believe are given new life. That right now, Jesus Christ, Jesus is ruling and he is reigning and we get to partake in that. And when he returns again and reestablishes his new kingdom, it'll be peace and joy that we get to partake in the inheritance that Christ deserved, that he gives to us because he loves us. That this life isn't the end, but only the beginning. And that for all eternity, God's people will marvel at God's love in his kingdom. That's what we'll do. And this is not a forced worship. This is a gratitude and a pure delight in him. Here, here's what I know. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, the, the thought of like continually singing praise songs to God, for, to God for forever doesn't sound that appealing. Let's just be honest, okay? However, I would say three things. One, that's not actually the portrait we get in scripture. The portrait we get in scripture is that you and I will have stuff to do, that it's not going to be like an elongated worship service forever. However, the second thing I would say is that when we see just how amazing and beautiful and understand in full capacity who God is and what he has done through Christ, I think we would actually have no problem doing that. 
But, but, but the reality here is that there's this pure joy, this delight in him, and, his, and that desire, knowing who Jesus is and what he has done, changes our desires. That it goes from, I better do the right thing so I can measure up, to I just want to love and honor God in response to the grace he has given me. It, it reminds me, of, I've shared this story in the past, but about 10 years ago, uh, uh, yeah, 10, 12 years ago, I was still living in Wilmington at the time. I had a friend on Facebook. I don't remember his name, who he is, or anything like this, but I, this is a completely true story. Um, it was Christmas Eve. And he posted on Facebook uh, this long thing about how he had, dri- he had just driven by a really large church in Wilmington, and it was full of cars. They had Christmas Eve services like all day long. And he had written this post about how grateful he was that he didn't have to waste his day off going to church. And this, his whole thing was like, the only reason people are there is because they feel like they have to be, or someone, like they have a family member that's bringing them there. Like nobody actually wants to spend their day off at church. They're only there because out of obligation or feeling like they got to measure up or do something for God to, li- to like them. So that was just, which I, by the way, I totally get. If you do not understand the grace and mercy of God, this does feel weird. Like, why would you waste Sunday mornings worshiping God and do, like, it makes no sense. And then about six or seven years later, it's a true story, um, he, he, po- he posts again this long thing on Facebook, uh, this, long, this, long, uh, this long post. And his whole thing was talking about how excited he was to be serving at his church's Christmas Eve services. Now, I don't, I don't want to say this. I don't know this for sure, um, but I'm almost positive. I can't remember. I think it was the same exact shirt, church he was making fun of all those years earlier. Now, so it's even cooler. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what happened in his life. I don't know what changed his heart. I don't know how he became captivated by Jesus. But something happened to him where years ago, he's like, why would anybody waste their time there? To now he's spending multiple hours volunteering at these Christmas Eve services. Why? Because his desires has changed and he wanted to help provide a place where people can receive the mercy of God. Now, this is what following Jesus does. Uh, Yes, he can alter our lives and our actions and our behavior. Those things do matter, but it's not about rule following. It's about desire. It is a response to the gift of God and a trust that his way is better that his way is better, that he has given us grace and mercy. And then Paul continues on by saying this in verse 8. He says, For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Right? It's not about you trying hard, you performing. It is God's grace and it is God's gift that he loves to lavish on his children. Here's the reality. The only people God saves are his enemies. The only people God gives his favor to are those who have sinned against him. The only people God redeems are people who do not deserve it. That's the only people. The only reason any of us are redeemed is because God did it. The only reason any of us are going to receive the mercy and grace of God is because God did it. And the difference between those in God's kingdom and those currently outside of the kingdom of God have nothing to do with attitude or lifestyle or personal piety or trying really hard. And it has only and everything to do with accepting the grace of God. Listen, God can and he does change us, absolutely. But there are no prerequisites to enter into his kingdom. There are none. And so so here's what this means for us. Not only is God helps those who help themselves unbiblical, it's actually the exact opposite, that God helps the helpless. 
God helps those who cannot help themselves. Uh, even more, he only saves that are help, those that are helpless. He only saves those that cannot save themselves. And so uh, there are no um, only apply with five years work experience to experience God's mercy or submit a list of three references and we'll call them and make sure they all check out. Then you can receive God's mercy that God takes dead things and he makes them new. And he does this so that none of us, you, me, or nobody can boast in or take pride in what we have done, we can only point to him and what Jesus has done. Now, of course, we can sinfully, if you follow Jesus for a while, you can sinfully take pride in your behavior. You can think of, well, I'm better than I used to be, or I don't do these things that other people do nowadays. And so thinking of of ourselves better than others, and of course, that is wrong, and we also need to repent of that. Uh, But God redeems us. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done, or, or put another way, that life is given, not earned. Life is given. It is not earned. And what's amazing is that there is nothing else in our entire world that works this way. In fact, this is a very clear distinctive of Christianity. There's a favorite quote of mine. I don't know where I first found it, but it was a biblical scholar. or sorry, a religious, a religious scholar. And he, put, he said this, that all religions are basically the same, except when it comes to the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, salvation, and the afterlife. And if you study religious studies, you'll see this, right? All world religions are vastly different on the character of God or the being or whatever they say he is or she is or it is. Um, the, our relationship to that God or to the gods, how we perform, how the God or the gods deal with uh, our shame and our sin, how to get to heaven or enlightenment or nirvana or the good place or whatever they say. They're all radically different. And one of the clear distinctive of Christianity that Jesus offers us is that he does the work and we reap the benefit. It has nothing at all to do with us climbing the ladder, with us trying to have more good karma than bad, uh, than us being a nice person or following the eightfold path or any of these things. It has nothing to do with all performance and all to do with him. That is who Jesus is. He has done the work. And then there's one more thing. I feel like an information, informational salesman this morning, but wait, there's more. Here's the capstone of all of this. In, chapter, in verse 10, he then says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In other words, while we are saved by grace alone, uh, God, knowing his plan of redemption, has things for us to do. Uh, Some translations say that we should walk in them that he has things for us to walk in. In, in other words, that he redeems us, he gives us grace, and then he gives us a job. Now, now, now what, we can, what can often happen is when we follow Jesus is we can kind of view ourselves like the sixth man in the NBA. So if you're not familiar, in, the, in basketball, you have a five on five, and then they give an award out at the end of the year for the sixth man. In other words, it's the best bench player in all of basketball. What's funny to me is like, all the starters, like, they don't really have awards for you unless you're, like, the MVP. And then the best bench player gets an award. I'm like, how is that fair? But anyway, the sixth man, he comes in, gives the starters a breather, scores points, and he's really good. He's not good enough to start, but he's good enough to get an award, right? And I think sometimes for us, what we often think is that we're the sixth man, that God might want us to do something here and there, but it's really for the professionals, or it's really for people who haven't screwed up the way I have. What we need to understand is that there is no sixth man award in the kingdom of God. 
that everybody's in the game and that nobody is on the bench. And if you are in Christ and you are filled with the spirit of God, that, that you have work to do, that God has things to invite you into that, that have to all to do with your history and your wiring and your experiences and your desires, that he has things for you to do. And here's what happens. If you punt that to me or any other professional minister, you'll rob yourself of joy. You'll miss out on seeing God move. You and I will miss an opportunity to see God flex his muscles of how he took dead people and made life inside of them and gave them something amazing to do. It is what God has done. It is what God has done. And what can happen, however, is that we still, we immediately think of here are all the ways I can't be used for God or here are all the ways I am disqualified. But you need to understand what Paul is telling us here is that God has a call on your life. He, not mine, on yours. And so don't let, so don't begin listing excuses in your head of why God can't use me to impact those around me, right? You might be thinking, well, I've been hooked on substances for years, or, or, or I failed the greatest school, or I only have my GED, or I was abused, and so I'm broken, and God surely can't use me, or I've been divorced multiple times, or, or I don't have any money. And here's what we do. We start listing these excuses, right? It all becomes about what we do, not what God has done. You're making it, we're making it about us. And last I checked, about 30 seconds ago, it ain't about you, right? You're dead. I'm dead, but God. And so, so, so listen, do you not think that your years of addiction cannot be recognized against the powers of darkness? You don't think your bad financial decisions uh, can't, and experiences can't be used to bring life and, and wisdom to other people? Uh, you don't think um, uh, your, your string of broken relationships can't bring protection and care for those who might be walking a similar path? That you can't bring wisdom and hope to people who have experienced some of the things that you've experienced? And hear me, in order for any of this to happen, you have to turn and believe that God has a call on your life and where he has placed you that he has good works prepared ahead of time for you. That's what he's done. And hear me, not to earn something from God, but rather to simply joyfully participate in what God is doing. Here's the reality. Every day is bring your child to work day in the kingdom of God. Every day. Every Sunday that I'm up here, God's like, hey, that was cute. You could have done better. But he's still, he's still inviting me in, right? Every day, God has taken our brokenness, our falling short, and he's inviting to, us to participate with him. And all of this is made possible by what we are celebrating today, the historical fact that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he defeated death and rose from the grave and offers grace and mercy to anyone who would accept it so that you might have life. That's what we're experiencing. In other words, God's grace gives you work to do. And now we often think it's the opposite. I got to work hard, then God will forgive me. No, it's God's mercy and love that gives us things to do, that his grace gives your life and your history and your bad decisions purpose. It gives them meaning. And hear me, this is not burdensome because God's love for you and your salvation is not contingent on how well you do it. That even when you blow it, even when you aren't faithful, he has not turned his back on you because you're already redeemed. And so he's just inviting you to follow him. He's just inviting you along and giving your life purpose. It's kind of like, 
like at, at the end of the school year, like in grade school, like after you've taken like the end of year tests and everything, but you still have to like go to school to like finish the days. It's like, there ain't nothing you could do to like earn it. Like, you, like the pressure's off, but you still, you still show up. Uh, this, is what's fo- this is what it means to follow Jesus. That the pressure's off, but he's still inviting us to show up. But, but his, his grace has still already happened, which is why in Romans chapter 10, it'll be on the screen. The apostle Paul writes this, uh, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So not your effort, not your performance, but trusting in Jesus. Verse 11, for the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, not those who dress a certain way, do a certain thing, have enough money, haven't made bad decisions. Everyone. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, of all people, of all the categories we might put them in. Jesus is still Lord of everyone, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And so hear me, if you think all this is great, but I just don't deserve it. Like I've just done too many things. I actually think that means you're ready. Right? It means that you realize you are dead. Like if you come to the spot where like, I want this grace and mercy, but I don't deserve it. That means you understand you're right. You're dead. You don't deserve it. But God, that is who invites you in. It means that you know that you're dead. It means that you know that you need God to do for you what you cannot make happen on your own. If you're like, man, I don't deserve it. That means you're ready. That means you understand. Or Jesus says this way. The last thing I'll read in John chapter five, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen, this is the invitation of Resurrection Sunday. The reason why we do not come into judgment is because Jesus took the judgment that we deserve on our behalf because he loves us, because he loves you. And not you in 10 years when you've got everything figured out, he loves you today. And so the question we've been looking at this morning again is this, how can we go from death to life? And here's the reality, that it is God's grace that brings dead people to life. It is God's grace. And it's not our effort. It's not our trying to do the bad thing or not trying to do the bad thing or trying to do more of the good thing. It is God's grace. Listen, our death is our default. That is where we are headed. We are broken. We are cut off. But God, that Jesus is our rescuer. This is why he came, not to be one of many ways to God or not to meet us halfway, that he came all the way down to bring anybody who would trust him, that there is no other option or alternative. Listen, nor could there be a better one. I mean, how much better can it get that God does it and you just receive it. I mean, would you really want it to be, I got to make sure I do enough good to check enough boxes. I got to make sure that my, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's a horrific, terrible way to live. But instead, God, who is rich in mercy, who is abounding in faithful loves, comes in the form of a man named Jesus to do what we could not do, that Jesus would take our sacrifice, that he would be our atonement so that you and I can experience life. And that is why we celebrate on this Sunday and every Sunday. Listen, I love New City Church. I love a lot of the great churches here in the Raleigh area. Community is great. Friendship is great. Encouraging one another is great. But we gather because of this, because there is life found in Jesus. This is not a social club. This is not like, hey, we're going to gather every Sunday morning to hang out with our friends. What a massive waste of time this is. If that's, the, if that's all the reason we're here. We're here because Jesus' grace brings dead people to life. And the invitation is for any and everyone to see and experience the Lord is good. 
That's why we sing. That's why we worship. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our blowing it, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and this year has been awful for you. You've blown it time and time again. God's grace is still sufficient. And if you're here this morning and you're still not sure about this Jesus thing, that in the midst of your shame, the midst of your doubts, the midst of your questions, his grace is sufficient for you as well. God's grace, not our effort, brings dead people to life.